Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is Nora, and I'm a member here. Today's reading will be Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Nora. Well, church, this morning we're going to do something a little bit different before the sermon. I'm going to do uh, what we're going to call just a, a pastoral prayer. And uh, if you saw on Facebook recently, I posted a video of a couple, a missionary couple that I've met recently. Their names are Cliff and Miranda. If you didn't know this, many of you do. My wife and I are in the process of adopting uh, from India. And so a pastor friend of mine connected us with this missionary couple who served together in India. And if you've also seen on the news, uh, the COVID-19 crisis has been surging and it's been an incredibly dark time and a very tragic time in India. Cliff and Miranda actually came home when COVID-19 hit and they're now in the process of discerning when to get back. And there is a little bit of a push even to try and get them back in ministry, uh, even ironically in the midst of everything that's going on. And so with that said, uh, we have a lot to, to pray for there for them. Let's, let's take a moment now and, and just quiet prayer and bring these things to the Lord. Would you pray with me now? Father, this morning we, we do want to recognize this COVID-19 crisis that's unfolding very intensely now in India. As their vulnerable hospital systems overflow and the virus continues to spread, God, please be a comforter to this hurting nation, especially uh, the few there who know and follow Jesus, like Cliff and Miranda. Uh, as, we re as we read about last uh, week in Third John, God, our support and care for missionaries like these, like Cliff and Miranda, is an important way for us to honor you even as you carry out your mission in the world. They have given their lives to see the gospel reach and redeem lost people in a very unreached part of the world. So be with their family as they discern when to return to India, whether that be this week or in the weeks ahead. And when they do return, God, please use their faith in Christ. Please use their devotion to you, Lord, as a light in a dark place during an especially dark time. Keep them safe, Lord, especially their young children, Roman and Chloe. Be with us today as well as we look to your word now. Uh, would you stir our affections this morning so that we could adore and delight in you all the more. We pray all these things together now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I have received this question a few times in ministry, honestly, but most recently it actually came from Buck Knit. Where's Buck? Buck here? There he is, yeah. You guys know Buck? As a member here, and he mentioned to me uh, that he was talking with his son, Foster, about eternal life. And, and Foster, his son, I think four or so at the time, asked him, but, but what are we going to do in heaven? 
And like a good dad who knows his Bible, uh, Buck said, oh, buddy, it's going to be great. Uh, We're going to worship God all the time, right? But like a good kid who thinks critically, which I really love, uh, instead of just accepting that answer, Foster said, "Mm, that sounds boring. (laughs) This sounds boring. And Buck shared with me that you're a little stumped by that, right? It's kind of hard to know as a dad, well, what's the (laughs) follow-up there? How do we respond to that? See, the truth is, even as parents and as adult Christians, I think we know this is the right answer, right? We're going to worship God forever and ever. We know that. That's right. But if we're honest, I think it is hard to be satisfied with that answer. And there are many reasons for this. I think for starters, it's because we tend to misunderstand some important things about the afterlife. We assume that we're just going to spend all of eternity forever and ever in heaven, which to us is this strange disembodied existence that we just don't even know about. So we just figure it's not even worth really thinking about or or even wondering about. When the truth is the Bible actually clearly teaches that while while we will be in heaven with God when we immediately die, eventually, no, we'll be resurrected Like Jesus, there will be a new heavens, a new earth. So I think there's a lot more continuity maybe between this life and the next life than we might assume. Uh, We know there will be food. There will be cities. In some ways, it will feel like this life just perfect, better, without sin. And so it's not just that we'll always be in this perpetual worship service all day even, uh, like we are right now, singing together praying together, all the joys of life will bring praise and glory to this God as they were meant to from the very beginning when he made us in his image so that in everything we do, we would reflect his glory and and praise him. That's what the point was in the very beginning. But even if we go a layer deeper than that, I think the truth is it's just kind of hard to imagine a God who is worth all that praise. A a God who is worth praising forever, isn't it? It's kind of tough to wrap your mind around that. Even the best things in life in our experience, they tend to just fade with time. We just have come to understand this. It's hard to imagine anything or anyone so great and, and so glorious that it could occupy our attention and and even stir our affections forever. Certainly nothing else like this in this life. And so what is it about God that makes him different? This is the big question we're after today in in this psalm. Why can't we exhaust the praiseworthiness of God? Why why isn't Foster Knit right about that question, right? Clearly, the psalmist doesn't think we can exhaust his praiseworthiness. He begins this psalm by telling us over and over to praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and not just for a while, notice, but he says forever and ever. He says in in verses one to three, just look at these with me, praise the Lord, praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth, And forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, he says, the name of the Lord is to be praised. In other words, in the words of that that Sandlot character, you remember that? Forever, right? Forever. 
doesn't get much clearer than that. But my sense is that the psalmist also has an understanding of this tension that Foster Knit was feeling, which is basically, look, are, are we really going to be able to keep this thing going? Is this really going to carry us? Isn't this experience of praising God going to lose its luster eventually? Isn't it going to get boring? And so the psalmist devotes the rest of this psalm to explaining why God is worthy of praise forever. And he gives us two reasons, two reasons why. So what we're going to look at today, just these two reasons, we're going to apply as we go. First, the psalmist reflects on the splendor of who God is. This God is no ordinary God, as you might think. And in particular, he explains that this God looks down on all of creation, far down. Starting in verse 4, the psalmist uses language that you'll notice points us up, 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 right? Higher, higher, higher. And he's trying to help us see that in relation to this world and the lives that we live in this world, God is high above it all. Right While we're down here on earth just trying to survive, trying to eke out an existence, he is high and lifted up. He is exalted and transcended. He looks down on it all. Look at verse 4 with me. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. That word for nations actually refers to people groups, which is different actually than a geopolitical nation that we think of today, like the United States or England or, or India, for instance. Uh, it refers to any group of people on earth that shares a distinct ethnicity and culture. And so especially these days, uh, most nations, and especially America, is made up of many of these people groups, right? We have an African-American community, we have a Hispanic community, we have an Asian community, we have a many European communities. And so to say that God is high above all nations, it means much more than just saying he is sovereign over world politics. That's true, and certainly it doesn't mean less than that, but more than that, uh, it means that he is high above every culture, every subculture, therefore every news story that we see developing, every person in the world. He is high above every shooting in our city, every troubling trend on the world scene. This God is high above it all. None of it phases him. None of it is a threat to his power or his glory. His glory, the psalmist says, is above the heavens. Uh, that word glory basically just means weightiness or heaviness even and especially in this day sacred and important items usually tended to be somewhat heavy think of golds metals precious stones these things and that's the idea here usually things that weigh a lot are worth a lot meanwhile cheap stuff can be kind of light uh, and, and, and disposable almost. To some extent, this is still true today. Uh, all of us have cameras on our phones. They're kind of a, a throw. They're, they're pretty nice these days, but I mean, that's just a fraction of what the phone does, right? We kind of take it out. We take pictures. We throw it in our pockets. We, but if you, if you see my wife's big Canon 5D whatever, 
It is, right? It's a really, like a professional camera. You hold that, it's heavy. You just get the sense as you pick it up. This is not cheap, right? It wasn't. It wasn't cheap. Um, but you get the idea, right? To be glorious in this way is to be weighty. It's to be supreme and superior. To be glorious in this way basically means to be a really, really big deal in a very evident way. And so the psalmist is saying, no, that's what I'm talking about. This, the weightiness of God, his big dealness is just off the charts. It's higher than you can imagine. It's above the heavens, he says. That word heavens often does refer to an eternal paradise we will enjoy in the life to come. But in a very literal sense, actually, the word just means the cosmos. I want you to imagine being an ancient person in a pre-industrial world without any technology, without any electricity even. Uh, I want you to imagine being a person in a world with, where there is no understanding of the solar system or any of that. Imagine being that person. I want to imagine walking outside in the still of night and looking up. Imagine seeing the moon, all the stars, every single night in roughly those same constellations and yet moving a shooting star maybe here or there, you'd probably be thinking, look, there's a lot of activity out there, um, but all of it is far beyond my range, right? Whatever it is, even however it all works, it is far beyond even my wildest imagination. I want you to be, imagine being that person, and now I want you to imagine reading this passage, that this God is high above even all of that, right? We like to think that the, the cosmos are not so far beyond our reach anymore these days because, you know, we just know so much about the universe. We know so much. Last week, the, the United States put a drone with a video camera on, on Mars. Did you see this? Uh, I don't know if you knew this. But that's like the next planet over, right? In, in the scope of our universe, that would be like pushing a little Hot Wheels car on the floor of the Grand Canyon. It's kind of like, woohoo. That's great, you know. But this was international news. The, the world was shocked and stunned and blown away by this incredible human achievement. The truth is the heavens are no less far beyond our reach than they were when this was written. And the truth is the God described here is no less high above them even today. This is the point the psalmist is trying to make. The weightiness of this God is so great. He is such a big deal that if we were to try and measure that weightiness, we would need to measure the full extent of the entire cosmos and then some. Because this God is high above even all of that. Whatever it is out there in the far off distant reaches of space, he is transcendent. He is incomprehensible in a way that cannot be said of anyone else. Else, which is why next in verse 5, the psalmist asks, who is like our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Now, obviously, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one is this high. 
To be seated in this way usually refers to someone's position of power. Uh, For instance, when when a king is seated on a throne, right? When a king or a prince walked into a room, usually in this day, everyone would rise from their seat to honor him Uh, While he made his way to his seat to be seated in this way, and people would not sit back down until he was seated. To be seated in this way, high, is a symbol of one's superiority and the respect that they deserve because of their superiority. The psalmist is saying, God is not just seated on some earthly throne. There are many of those. No, he is seated on high. What does that mean? What is, what is on high? Where is that? Well, wherever you think he is, think higher. H- however highly you may think of him, keep going. This is what this means. He is seated on high. In relation to all of our human affairs, he has to look down, far down, just to see us. Just to be aware of what's going on in this world, he is so much better than all of it. Even the cosmos is far beneath him. He looks far down even on the heavens. As we read this, we should get this inescapable sense. It's just impossible to miss here that we are far beneath this God in every conceivable way. And so to help us apply this today, I just want to ask a very simple question. Is your God this big? Is your God this big? Is your God bigger and greater and higher than you in every conceivable way? It is my firm conviction that one of the biggest Theological problems in our day, and often even in the church today, is basically what you might call a tiny little God syndrome. There are so many factors in our everyday lives that are designed to convince us that we are big, friends. We are high. We are exalted and lifted up. We're all master consumers. We get to choose between countless different options every single day and with every decision we say, I'll take that, not those million other things, I'll take that and that and that. Not those things, those things, right? We're told constantly, you do you, right? Be true to yourself. Look out for number one. Make sure you're getting enough self-care, right? We have these phones that we can all control and customize to maximize our joy, our attention, our entertainment at just the swipe of a finger. There are countless factors that work together, it seems, to get our eyes down. Down. And to keep them there. To keep our eyes off of this transcendent God and on ourselves. Many people just assume this is just life in the modern world. People don't believe in the God of Psalm 113 anymore. They don't believe in this kind of transcendent stuff. We, we just know more now, right? We're enlightened. But I think we stand to lose quite a bit more than we realize when we lose sight of this kind of exalted, transcendent God and we replace him with some puny little life coach in the sky type of God. Because as our vision of our life grows, And our vision of God's exaltation shrinks. 
it also has the effect of making problems that are admittedly a big deal for us uh, seem not only big, but altogether insurmountable. Completely insurmountable. I have to imagine this is at least a big part of the reason it has something to do with the incredible rise that we've seen in, in loneliness, depression, all kinds of manners of, of mental illness these days. We have elevated ourselves. We are high and lifted up in, in our minds, and, and it's not helping us. It's crushing us. It may seem fulfilling to think that you are the biggest possible deal when all is well and you have what you want and need, but what about when you don't? What about when it's not? Uh, what about when the kids who you thought were going to fulfill you don't even seem to like you anymore? Or the health that you always thought you'd have starts to decline and rapidly. Or that big break you were sure was just around the corner still hasn't come. Uh, what about when the country you've always known and loved takes a turn for the worse, starts to change in ways you're uncomfortable by? Or the career you thought would just keep rising and rising and rising is somehow now in a nosedive. What happens when we keep looking inside ourselves to find meaning and make sense of all these things, but as hard as we look and no matter how much we try, we just can't find it anywhere? What then? When checking our phones and making more money and having more free time and more fun just won't do it. Church, a personal little therapeutic God who exists to kind of pat us on the back now and then, that is not gonna help us in that case. If we don't have this kind of God who is far bigger and infinitely greater than us, life can be pretty horrific when our bigness starts to shrink and our glory starts to fade. Do you have an infinite exalted God who you can look to when that day comes. Is your God this big? Whatever we think is a big deal in this life, I mean, whatever it is, whether it's a crisis, we're in a conflict, or even a desire we have, a dream of some sort, or some experience we long for, some sort of mountaintop, mountain range experience, even the cosmos themselves, none of it is higher than this God. He is exalted above it all. He is the greatest possible good. He is high and lifted up. And so we can see why already he's worthy of praising, maybe even forever, because everything else worth praising is far beneath him. He's exalted over all of it. He's infinitely greater and higher. He looks down on all the joys that we have, everything we experience in this life. But it gets even better than that. It gets even better than that. Not only is this God exalted, not only does he look far down on all of creation, but part two, he also lifts up lowly people. He also lifts up lowly people. Now, compared to all that language we just saw about the highness, the heights, the exaltation of God, listen to this. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit 
with princes, with the princes of his people. In both of these scenarios, God is lifting up lowly people, people who don't have much going for them in life. Right? To be poor in this world is to be in the dust, so to speak. It's to be low. It's to be insignificant, without much hope, without many prospects, without much influence. Right? You can't just kind of make life happen when you're poor in this way. In many ways, you're kind of at the whims of other people, and their power and their influence. To be needy in this world is to be in an ash heap. When a building burns, we like to say that it burned to the ground, right? Which is to say that it fell. The building was made low. And all that was left is now just this heap or a pile of ash, sort of a remnant of what used to be high, of what used to be valuable, what used to be great. The point here is none of us want to be in need. We'd much rather have plenty. None of us want to be poor. We'd much rather be rich. And yet in relation to God, this is how we're presented here in this psalm, as poor and as needy. But I want you to notice this reversal. Notice this reversal. This God doesn't just help lowly people. He makes them to sit with princes. In other words, the God who is seated on high himself, the one who is far above every nation and therefore every prince, descends down. He comes down to us, down from the heights of his glory to rescue us from our poverty and our need. The one who is high and lifted up, the one who is seated in a position of power on high himself lifts us up to sit, as he does, in a position of glory. Now, I have to admit, I think it's a little hard for most of us to really understand these verses. Uh, because my sense is that most of us live, a, especially in the scope of, of world history and even the world today, a fairly affluent, comfortable life. Uh, many of you uh, work in a very successful uh, business of some sort or even maybe run a successful business. Some of you are well on your way in a prosperous career in, in medicine. Uh, even as a pastor, uh, I, I, my life, I, I tend to wake up in the morning on a, on a, on a pillow top mattress <laughs> with a down comforter. Uh, I go downstairs, I, I fill up our little tea kettle for, for a French press coffee. The clean water comes on every single time I turn the faucet on. Every single time, it's always clean. I flick a little switch here and the gas just fires up the fire I need to make that. Uh, I sit and have some coffee and, and read a Bible in quiet, in peace. In, in the morning, I even have a little leather chair that's a recline. It's got two buttons on the side. My feet can go up and down, Right? Most of us don't really know what it's like to be low in this way. If we did, I think we would read this psalm very differently. We've not been lifted out of poverty and need. But this next part, though, many of us do understand. Okay, verse 9. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. We just saw Sarah and Lucas rejoicing over their son, Grayson. We're incredibly blessed by this. Uh, we're going to do a child dedication in a couple weeks, two weeks, and we're going to have probably about 13 kids to dedicate. Uh, it's unbelievable how God has blessed 
our church in this way. It's a really special thing, especially because in just these two short years of church planting, we have walked with a number of you who have experienced miscarriages. Some of you also uh, long to be married and then have children someday, uh, but can't find the right spouse. You may not know the sorrow of poverty and need, but this sorrow, the sorrow of barrenness, you know very well. When we long for a great joy in life, marriage, family, children, whatever it may be, but we have no ability to just make that happen in and of ourselves, none. Often feels very low. In this day, it was somewhat common for men even to divorce their wives if they proved to be infertile because uh, having children was not just considered a privilege and a blessing. The kids in this day weren't just kind of an ornament to your life. It was also a necessity. Children were seen, uh, they were often put to work at a young age, therefore seen as a means of income. They were also expected and needed even to care for their elderly parents. There were no retirement homes or communities So if you wanted not to die in poverty and squalor as your physical health deteriorated, you needed to have children to care for you. Therefore, adult women who could not have children were considered some of the lowest and least significant members of society. They were often abandoned, left homeless, Right? She often had little hope of a prosperous life. She often had very few prospects of a bright future. But here again, I want to look at this reversal. This high and exalted God gives lowly, barren women a home and many children. In other words, he reverses her sorrow. Where she used to have little hope and very few prospects, this exalted God has come down. He has descended to give her great hope and to multiply her prospects. He lifts her up. Now, why would he do that? Why would this kind of exalted God do that? What does he stand to gain by helping a barren human woman in this way? The answer is nothing. He gains Nothing. So why does he do it? Because he is just that good. This is the point. This God is far higher than we could ever imagine, and yet he also condescends, church. He comes down to our level to rescue lowly people like us, to to meet us in our need, and to raise us up. And this is the answer to our big question. This is why he is worth praising forever and ever from this day forth and forevermore. This is why, tell Foster, it's not going to get boring. It's not. Here's why. It's because an exalted God who lifts up lowly people is always worthy of praise. Always. It's not just that he's exalted. Uh, Every God and every religion is presented as in some way high above us. Uh, But even in his infinite glory, this God is also good. 
and kind to us. Kind enough even to care for us in our need. Now, especially in the ancient world, which is full of false gods and idols of all kinds, that was incredibly unique. That was incredibly unique. This God doesn't just see us in our poverty and our need and our barrenness and scoff at us. Well, good luck down there. Got bigger, better things to do up here. Sorry. No, even as he looks down on us from high above the heavens, he looks down with kindness. He looks down with compassion. And so maybe your God is as big as this God we see in Psalm 113. I hope that he is. But, but let me ask you this today. Is your God this kind? Is he this kind? It's not uncommon for people to believe in a very harsh or even punitive God as if, yes, he is high above us, but really he's up there just waiting to come down on us. I think this is often because there is no question about it. The God of the Bible does have a capacity for judgment and wrath. He is a holy and just God. He will crush evil and sin. And sometimes when we read of this in the Bible or we hear others talk about it, I think we just assume he must like to pour out his judgment and wrath in this way. That must just be par for the course for him. He just likes that's such a normal Tuesday for him. Understandably, I think for many people, that's a pretty hard pill to swallow. But this kind of anger we're talking about and the kindness we see of this God in, in this psalm are not equally desirable in his eyes. Right? He will do both, that's for sure, but he does have a preference. He does have a preference. Uh, the author, Dane Ortland published a hit book this last year, actually. It may go on even to be a, cl a classic Christian book called Gentle and Lowly. If you have not read that, I, I can't recommend it enough. It's a wonderful little book, about 200 pages, just a, an incredible, enriching book for your spiritual life. The entire book just unpacks, it's called The Heart of God Towards Sinners and Sufferers, right? He's asking this question, what is this God really like? What's his true essence? And there's a chapter in that book that just blew me away. And it was called His Natural Work and His Strange Work. And in this chapter, Ortland addresses the tension between God's kindness or his mercy and his justice. And he points out that in the book of Isaiah, for instance, when the God is about to pour out his wrath and judgment on a people, the prophet calls this his strange deed or his alien work. In other words, this is something God does, uh, but he does it sort of awkwardly, right? Meanwhile, in Lamentations we read, he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. In other words, Ortland is drawing our attention to the fact that God clearly does have a capacity for both. He is fully just and he is fully kind, but in his heart, in the depths of who he is, he has a strong preference for showing mercy and being kind. This is how Ortland puts it in his book. He says, God is unswervingly just. But what is his disposition? What is he on the edge of his seat eager to do? If you catch me off guard, he says, what will leap out of me before I have time to regain my composure will likely be 
grouchiness. I can relate to that. If you catch God off guard, what leaps out most freely is blessing. It's the impulse to do good. The desire to swallow us up, he says, in joy. This is the heart of God. He's gentle. Can you believe it? He's gentle. And even as high and exalted and lifted up as he is, he's also lowly. <laughs> it's incredible. Now, I do want to address a tension here. And that is that this psalm does seem to suggest that God is worth praising forever because he lifts lowly people up. In other words, he helps them in their need. And you may be wondering, well, when is that going to happen for me? I would love to praise God in this way. I would love it. But I've been waiting for this for years, whatever it may be. I've been waiting for this kind of help, and it just doesn't seem to come. It hasn't come. I want to point something out. It's really important how we read and understand this psalm. I want to point out that the psalmist is not saying here that God does this all the time in every circumstance. That's not what the psalmist is saying. He is simply marveling at the fact that this kind of exalted God does this ever in any circumstance. Right? And so the good news of this psalm is not just getting the stuff we want and the things we think we need. The good news of this psalm is that this high and exalted God is the kind of God who also at the very same time is humble and he is kind to us. This is why the call to action in this psalm is not, hey, go live the good life, enjoy that prosperous life you have now. Woohoo, right? No, the, the call to action here is praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. He is the good news of this psalm, church. His heart towards us, his kindness, his compassion. And so whether he's lifted you out of poverty yet or not, whether he has, whether or not, rather, he's given you the spouse you want or the children you long for, this psalm is still just as true. It absolutely is. You may not have what you think you need, but you can be sure it's not because this God is withholding it from you, just wanting to sit back and watch you struggle. It's not the kind of God he is. Sometimes, unfortunately, the truth is we just don't know the reason for our suffering and our pain. This is part of the tragedy of life in a fallen world. But even in those dark times, what we do know about God can be trusted. And whether or not he's lifted you up here and now by meeting that felt need you have, he is exalted high above that need. We know that. We can be sure of that, whatever it is. And he does look down on you in kindness and compassion. He is grieved by your grief. He longs to wipe away your tears. But more importantly, in the most ultimate possible sense, church, he has come down to our level. He has met all of us in our poverty and need. And this is what we celebrate every year during Advent, Christmas. This high and exalted God who looks down on all of creation has entered into creation literally in the person of Jesus Christ, the one whose glory is 
high above even the heavens has come down to the earth. In the person of Jesus Christ, this infinite God had a runny nose. He might have pulled a muscle now and then. He wept, we know. He became poor so that we might be made rich. He laid down his life so that we might be born again. Church, the gospel itself is the story of this exalted God coming down to us to lift us up. Jesus is this exalted God of Psalm 113 who is worthy of praising forever, and yet he let us beat and mock him. He let us crucify and kill him. He let us bring him low to the grave even while we mocked him as if he were beneath us as if our lives were more valuable than his life, which is the source of all life. Just imagine the irony of this, church. Just imagine. This God, who is exalted, high above the heavens, dead in a grave on earth. Why would he do this? Why would this exalted God descend to the grave? Why? So that he could lift us up out of ours. So we may not have that spouse or those kids or that job we need. And if so, first, I do want to say this. We need to recognize, and it is worth mentioning, this God can and does give us those things sometimes, even against incredible odds. He raises people up. Absolutely, someday he may do that for you. If and when he does, it will be a great joy and delight to him. We can be sure of that. We can be sure. But whether you get those things or not, in the person of Jesus Christ, this God, this high and exalted God, has given us himself. And when an exalted, glorious God comes down to our level to lift us up in glory with him, what else could there possibly be to do but to praise him forever?